Okay. We've been doing a series on 1st John, 2nd John, 3rd John, and we decided to take that last little one there on the end and stick that in too. That's the book of Jude. Little kids were over here tonight talking to me, and they saw what I wrote on the board. And I said, where's that in the Bible? They were thinking pretty hard about that. And uh, I said, go over, because if you go to the house, you'll see that they made hopscotch all the way through the house, the books of the Bible. So I said, go over there and hopscotch and tell me what it is, because it's right at the end. So we'll see. (laughs) We'll see how they did (laughs) later on. All right. We're in the book of Jude book before revelations it's also a letter uh this one of course is signed we know who did it for sure it's jude and it's not written to anybody in particular any church or any individuals i think it's meant to be spread around to whoever wants to read it so uh let's take the first verse about it jude servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James. And so it tells us who is Jude? Who is he? Well, that's a pretty interesting part when you think about who's this guy, Jude. Um, He says he's the brother of James. And so we know Jude and he's got a brother, James. He also has a brother, Jesus. <laughs> That's a pretty, uh, a pretty high-class family, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have uh, three brothers. Jesus, of course, is actually a half-brother. Uh, same mother, different father. And then James uh, was uh, the one that we hear about in the book of we don't hear about Jude anywhere until we get to here when it tells us that he's a brother of James. And you notice he didn't say he was a brother of Jesus. Why not? Why Joseph? <laughs> he wants to be a servant of Jesus. That's what he says. When he talks about his brother, he grew up with him. He calls himself, I'm the servant of my brother, Jesus. So that's quite a family. It's a remarkable household. Uh, They have uh, lots of writings. James wrote a book that we've done here before. Very thoughtful, thought-provoking book. James was uh, the leader of the church, actually. This half-brother to Jesus, when the apostles started the church in the book of Acts in the beginning, then they had to leave town. As they were driven out of town. And so they left town and began to spread the gospel all over. James stayed behind, took over, running the church in Jerusalem. And we see him all through the book of Acts as the leader of the church in Jerusalem. You want to be in charge of that church? Hang on to your hat, man. It's a tough goal. They made it rough on him. He was stable. And capable of hanging on. And so uh, he's a very thoughtful guy. And, and he stayed for the persecution. But they did. They starved everybody out. Uh, they tried killing them first. And that didn't seem to work. Uh, Paul was the 
tried to kill the early Christians. But that spread them out. And then James stayed behind there, and he led the church in Jerusalem. And of course, he's half-brother to Jesus. And then uh, Jude comes along. It's a pretty impressive family. Who, you say, well, did he write a book? Well, any, you remember the red letters I'm always talking about? He, those are all his. <laughs> he said all those. So there's a lot of things in there that Jesus said <laughs> that they recorded. And, of course, Jesus is, we know, the word of God. Or that is, he is the expression. He expresses the thoughts in the mind of God. He's the word. He expresses thoughts. And so Jesus, of course, was the best ever, best ever communicator that ever lived. It's God talking to us so we can understand. James was also a very effective communicator. Then we come to Jude. And so from one family, we get three authors in the Bible. That's a pretty well-raised family. That's not normal. And uh, Jude writes a whole lot from the Old Testament, which tells us something about that family. We've got Old Testament readings constantly. They grew up on the Old Testament. There Jesus would learn his own mission. James would learn how to eventually run the church. And Jude would write... A great many examples here. It's an unusual piece that he writes here. It's all from the Old Testament. And so a very powerful comprehension of the Old Testament. You get that when you're this big. In church every week. And you learn and you learn and you learn and you learn. And uh, so the, that family, uh, Mary kept them right along where they were supposed to be. And uh, kept them all going. And then Jesus, once they reached the point where Jesus left home and stepped out into ministry, it took them a while because you see them coming to get him. After a while, as Jesus is ministering for a few months, and then they said, here. And he says, well, why are they here? He said, well, they're here to get you out of here. They think you're gone crazy. <laughs> Jesus says, who's my mother and who's my father and my brother? And he says, you all are. You all are. And uh, so in the, in the beginning, they just couldn't comprehend what he was doing. But obviously they turned around. So Jude calls himself the servant of Jesus Christ. He's got it figured out now. He's not my half-brother. He's my master. He's the master. Okay? So Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father, preserved in Jesus Christ, and called. So he says, Who's, who am I writing to? Well, first of all, they're going to be called. People are called. All right? That's an important thing. Uh, if you believe in Jesus, you were called. You didn't all of a sudden decide one day, I think I'm going to start believing. whisper in your heart starts to urge you and help you to desire it even want it to happen and then God's call responded 
all of God. First of all, unto God the Father. Uh, they were loved by the Father. People who were loved by the Father. All right. And they were in Jesus Christ. Preserved or uh, made to believe or to have faith. To the people who have faith because of Jesus Christ. You said to me, Eric, why do you do what you do? Why do you preach? Why do you teach? Why did you do all this? There's only one answer to it because I believe in Jesus Christ. That's it. It's really nothing else. Uh, say, well, you were raised. Yeah, I was raised good. I don't argue with that. But there came a point when I said, look at this, what Jesus did. Nobody else could ever do what he did. Nobody walked on the water. Nobody raised the dead. Nobody made blind eyes see. Nobody to do those things. And so somebody was there to do it, and he did what nobody else could do. And he said what nobody else could say. And after you read it and you understand it, you say to yourself, there's no and that was God walking around on this earth, took up a human form. And if God came down to earth, then he's the one you believe in, and he's the main reason. And so we're called, loved by God. Because of what Jesus did. And that's what helps us and settles us in who we are. And that's who he's talking to. People who love God, even Jesus Understand that they are called to do something. Verse 2, mercy unto you, peace and love be multiplied. So he said, what I want for you is more mercy, more peace and more love. Anybody like, are you all okay with that? I'll take all that I can get. Right? Give me more and more and more. Give me more love. Give me more peace. Give me more mercy. He said, I want you to be multiplied. Have it more and more and more in your life. And that's why I'm writing to you. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you something different. I was going to write to you about the common salvation. I was going to explain to you how Jesus lived and how he died on a cross and what that accomplished for us. I was going to write about that. I was going to lay out the basic steps of what we believe. But as I set to do that, something else came up that was more important. It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. I saw more important that than for me to describe this basic thing, this truth that you believe. He said, I think you got to stand up and you got to fight for it. You got to stand up and uh, uh, fight for what we believe. You're going to have to defend the faith. Now, obviously, he's got a reason for that, and he'll tell us what it is. But he thought it was more important than explaining 
what it was. Of course, other people had done that. Uh, to teach us, step up now. You've got to defend what you believe in. You have to comprehend it, understand it. And here's what you've got to understand. You have to understand it enough so you could explain it to somebody who came up to you and said, I don't get it. Can you explain it? Can you tell people what it is in a convincing way so that they'll accept and believe what you say? Are you well, uh, well informed enough to explain it to others? Can you explain these things to other people? Can you defend it? Can you say that's true? Here's, here's the fact of the truth. You have been given a trust. And God said, here's what I have, what I did. Now you're going to have, I'm going to trust you with this message. It's up to you. So I'm going to trust you with the message. So you've been given something very, very important. And it's your responsibility this trust well. You've been given this trust, all right? So it's our to use the gospel well. Or as he offended. To step up, explain it, and not only explain it, but if somebody says, well, here's what I think, to defend it too. He says, this is becoming really important that you stand now for what's true. Uh, I don't know if anybody saw this, but I saw in the state of, what was it, Oregon? What a place that is. Uh, where some teacher sent out a, a, a reply and she said, we have these Christo-fascists as parents. They're trying to run our schools. Called us Christo-fascists. I thought to myself, boy, what, that's a beautiful thing to send your kids to school like that. Call Christo fascists, or in other words, Christ believing uh, bigots, whatever they want, however they want to pull it. Yeah, it's time for us that we do know what to talk about and what to say and how to explain it. And make sure that it's clear in our mind so that we can stand up and fight for it. He says, you need to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. To the church of Jesus Christ. And they better handle it and handle it well. And they haven't always done it. They haven't always done it. As a matter of fact, sometimes they failed miserably to defend the faith, stand up for it, and say what we believe. And so, uh, to this group of people that he's writing for, he says, you need to understand. Now, some people criticize Jude as being unfactual. There's always people who make their reputation by criticizing everything. They call themselves higher critics, which means I'm smarter than you, so I can criticize everything, and you got to figure out whether it's true or not. 
So I give those people about three seconds. I read, oh, that's enough. No, don't bother with them because they're just being miserable. And when it comes to Jude, there's a couple things that he's going to mention in here. And they say, well, there's no proof of that in the Bible. Well, it's kind of right here. <laughs> Imagine that. And people say, well, I didn't know that this is, well, it has been accepted for the last 2,000 years as part of the Bible, unquestionable part of the Bible. And what I always say when people say, well, how do you know the Bible? Look, look, God in heaven, write a message to us, it's the Bible. Do you think he could handle that? Oh, I think he can handle it. I think he can get the message through. All right, and so uh, when people argue, oh, well, this little part of this verse may not, yeah, don't even, just skip over those people. And there's a couple people that really criticize Jude, say, well, he's got information that he can't prove. Well, we're not asking him to prove some little fact or other. Believe me, we'll find he's very well versed and knows what he's talking about. And so uh, there's always people that made their whole living publishing a book criticizing everything they could think of. And, of course, they like to criticize Jude. As he said, make sure you know <laughs> so you can defend the faith. Because they're going to go after him, too. He knew, he knew that. He knew that. Now let's see what kind of people these are. Verse 4. For there are certain men crept in unawares. Or there are people who you would describe as being sneaky, stealthy. And they crept in unawares. They crept in where? To the church. They came to a church and came in quietly and snuck in the door and sat down and said... Hey, I'm a part of a church. Here I am. Who, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Now that's quite a statement. That we're going to have to figure out. He said they were of old or from a long time ago ordained or that is uh, uh, chosen uh, to this condemnation that is something they are going to pay for what they did and they're going to pay dearly for what they did All right. so uh, we've got to think about that because that's a pretty serious statement they are ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness or that is God comes along and he offers us grace. Grace is easy to take. It's, un, it's favor from God. We call it unmerited uh, favor. It's favor from God. It comes in grace. And so people say, well, God's full of grace. And he's just going to let it go. Let it go. He's going to be very kind to us. Very, very generous. So they thought, well, as long as God's letting everything go, and uh, this love that this church has, I'm going to switch it over to lust or lasciviousness, was what he used there. Some of these big words uh, we never use. 
because uh, lasciviousness is what came along. These people had other motives. They didn't come to join, but to do something that they wanted. And uh, uh, one of them was lascivious, that is, it was to express lust. So they said, we're going to come into this church where everybody loves each other, and we, we talk about that. We enjoy each other's company. We come. We love each other. Everybody gives everybody a hug. It's a very nice time to be here together. That's right. And if some guy comes in and he's got a wrong idea, I'm going to switch this because I can just step over and make it something. Uh, use lust because it's grace and everybody just lets things go. And that's what he thinks. And so he says, they're turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. They do three things. Switch love. They don't reverence God, and they, of course, deny Jesus as master. All right? What did Jude say? I am the servant of Jesus. I'm the servant of Jesus. These people come in. You say, are you a servant of Jesus? No. <laughs> I'm okay. I, I know what I'm doing. I don't need to be anybody's servant. So these guys come into the church and they have an attitude that they want to turn things to be something different. Begin. And they're pretty striking examples that he's going to give us about how to think about this. Uh, so if somebody comes in and says, well, I'm a part of a church. Is that all you need to say? Is that all you need to say? Uh, well, you, you can say anything you want. So I'll give you some examples of people who said, we're a part of this, but they really weren't. Here we go. Verse 5. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterwards, not. And so he says there's an Old Testament example and we're going to look at it because it's pretty striking what happens here. It's in Numbers chapter 16. Now there's several things here that he refers to but this is one of them in particular. Look at Numbers chapter 16. It's not a passage that most people are familiar with, so I'm going to read this whole passage because it's it's just when you when you're finished with it, you go, "Whoa, what was that?" All right, so get ready, hang on to your hat for number 16 because we meet a guy named Korah, and Jude's going to talk about Korah, and what he's saying to us is this: Here's the people, a whole nation of. Israel are slaves in Egypt. 
And God comes on that first Passover, and they kill the lambs, and they put the blood on the door. And Moses goes, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. Finally, when all the firstborn die, Pharaoh says, get out. And so that first Passover, they go under the blood of the doorpost, and out they go. The whole nation of slaves, people think as much as a million and a half people. And they walked out of Egypt into freedom. And you know the story. They go down by the Red Sea. Pharaoh changes his mind, sends his army after him. And God says that Moses, hold your staff out in the Red Sea. Parts. And it's dry land on the bottom. It's amazing. All right. And they go across the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's army goes, rushes in the same pathway, and he lets the waters come, drowns the whole army. So there they are. The whole nation is free. The whole nation has been through the plagues, come out under the Passover lamb, crossed over the Red Sea, and here we all are rejoicing on the other side of the Red Sea. We're free, we're free, we're free. Okay, good. We're all in this together, right? And so they're eating manna off the ground every morning, drinking water from a rock in the middle of the desert. They're having all these blessings. He said they came out of Egypt together, but were they really together? Here we go, chapter 16 in Numbers. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, so he's of the tribe of the Levites, all right? And Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, they're also Levites. And On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. So you've got three principal leaders from the tribe of Levi and another. They rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. So they got 250 men here. And they stand up against Moses. Verse 3, and they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, said unto them, You take too much upon you, being all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Therefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. So these guys make a charge. Who do you think you are being the boss? We're all holy. We all came out of Egypt. We all crossed the Red Sea. We're all eating manna. We're all holy people. So who put you in charge? Verse 4. Moses heard it. He fell on his face. And he spake unto Korah, seems to be the, the ringleader, and to all his company, saying, Even tomorrow the Lord will show who are his and who is holy. Cause him to come near to him, even him whom he has chosen, he will cause to come near to him. This do take you censors, Korah, and all his company, put fire therein, incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. It shall be <coughs> that the man whom the Lord doth choose, he shall be holy. You take too much on you, the sons of Levi. And so he says, Tomorrow, all of you guys have your censer, have a little. Um, brass holder and they can put a little uh, incense in it and burn it. All right. 
That's what it's for. He says, you bring your censers and your incense and come out tomorrow and stand in front of God at the door of the tabernacle. Verse 8, Moses said to Korah, Here I pray you, you sons of Levi, seemeth it a small thing unto you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do service of the tabernacle of the Lord, to stand before the congregation and minister unto them? Hath he brought thee near to him and all thy brethren, sons of Levi, and seek ye the priesthood also? So these People are of the same family, the tribe of Levi. And he says, you have jobs to do. you got work to do. You're here to serve the congregation. When sacrifices are made, you got work to do. But you want to be the high priest, don't you? You want to be the man in charge. Verse 11, for which cause both thou and all thy company are gathered together against the Lord. And what is Aaron that you murmur against him? So... They're complaining. They want Aaron taken out of his position. They're going to take it over themselves. And they're taking over for Moses. Verse 12. Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Elihab, which said, we will not come up. So here's tomorrow. Everybody shows up the door to the temple. So these three guys, Korah and Dathan and Abiram, we ain't coming. We're not going to be there. We won't be showing up because you said so. Okay. Verse 13. It is a small thing that has brought us up out of the land that floweth with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, except thou make thyself altogether a prince over us. Moreover, thou hast not brought us into the land that floweth with milk and honey, or give us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will thou put out the eyes of these men? We will not come. So he said, we were in a land flowing with milk and honey. Egypt. Oh, I forgot we were slaves. Never mind. That was a land flowing with milk and honey. And when we came out here, we were supposed to have land. And here we are in the middle of nowhere. You think we can't see what's going on? You brought us out so you could be in charge of us. 15. Moses was very wroth. Said to the Lord, Respect not thou their offering. I have not taken one ass from them, neither have I hurt one of them. And Moses said to Korah, Be thou and all thy company before the Lord, thou and they and Aaron tomorrow. Every man take his censer, put incense in them, bring ye them before the Lord, every man his censer, 250 censers, and thou also and Aaron, each of you his censer. So they took every man his censer, put fire in them, laid the incense thereon, stood in the door of the tabernacle of the congregation with Moses and Aaron. So there's three fellows, these three leaders of the opposition, and they say, we're not coming. But the other 247, they fill their little uh, brass pieces with incense, and they go stand in front of the tabernacle. 19. Cor gathered all the congregations. The glory of the Lord appeared. The Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Separate yourself from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And Moses and Aaron fell on their face and said, Oh God, God of the spirits of us, shall one man sin and wilt thou be wroth with the whole congregation? 
The Lord said unto Moses, Speak to the congregation to get you up from about the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Byram. He said, Get away from these three men who refused to come to the temple door. They're standing in their own tents. Make sure you tell everybody, Get away from those tents. All right? Verse 25. Moses rose up, went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. He spake unto the congregation, Depart from the tents of those wicked men. Touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in their sins. So they got up from the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. That's their tents. On every side, they get away. They make a big gap. Dathan and Abiram came out, stood in the door of their tents with their wives and their sons and their little children. Amen. We're not going to the tabernacle, just so you know. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them mine own mind. These men die the common death of all men, or if they be visited after the visitation of all men, then the Lord hasn't sent me. But if the Lord make a new thing, and the earth open her mouth and swallow them up with all that appertain unto them. They go down quick into the pit. You shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. It came to pass as he made an end of the speaking all those words, the ground clave asunder that was under them. The earth opened up her mouth, swallowed them up, their houses, and all the men that appertain unto Korah and all their goods. They and all that appertain to them went down alive into the pit. The earth closed on them, and they perished from among the congregation. Wow. Right there, they're standing there in defiant at their own tent. And God says, well, it's just whoosh. <clears throat> Buried alive instantly. So, you think they were a part of the congregation? I don't think so. God doesn't bury people alive <laughs> like that. Wow, that was pretty amazing. All right. Everything just, just disappeared. And so they all moved around. Let's get away from them. Verse 35. And there came out a fire from the Lord and consumed the 250 men that offered. Some who did or light their little. They went and stood by the tent. The glory of God was inside the tabernacle, which was that big tent that they had in the wilderness. And suddenly out the doorway comes this flame. And the 247 of them were burned to a crisp. In a moment, gone. Now, anybody want to defy Moses now? <laughs> I don't think so. So you think, well, wow, everybody sure wants to learn their lesson that time. No, no, I don't think so. Look down to verse 44. Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Get you up from this congregation, that I may consume them as in a moment. And they fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a censer, and put the fire therein from all the altar, and put on the incense. Go quickly to the congregation. Make atonement for them. For there is wrath gone out from the Lord, and the plague has begun. So they were mad that these people got buried alive and burned up. And they said, we're mad about this. We don't think that should have happened. And God said, okay, I'm going to send the plague. So they're going to start dying. Aaron says, hurry up, light that incense. Before they all get consumed. 47. Aaron took as Moses commanded, ran into the midst of the congregation. Behold, a plague was begun among the people. 
He put on incense and made atonement for the people. He stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stayed. Now they that died in the plague were 14,700. Beside them that died in the matter, of course. 14,700. There's 14,950 people who part of this. We came out of Egypt. They stood up against what God wanted, and so God said, you're buried alive, you're burned alive, and you're dying from a plague so fast that before he can light incense and run out there, there's 14,000 dead. Alright. Now, Jude's question. There's people among you who came in and they think they're on your side. And they're not. They're not. He says, what happened? Let's see what Jude said here. Remember what he said here? Verse 4. Certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. God decided that when people join themselves to his people, they have to be one in heart, one in soul, one in mind. They can't come in and say, hey, I'm a part. I can do, I'm here to join up, do whatever I want. Can't do that. God's not going to allow it. And he says, from old, they're going to be punished. And he said, here's the first example in the Old Testament. And uh, it was all kinds of if you go through Exodus, uh, there's, there's all kinds of them. And eventually, the entire nation dies. The entire nation die. They went to the promised land. They said, here we are. Let's go in and take it. And the two spies came back and said, we can do it. We're ready. Let's go. That was Joshua and Caleb. The other ten, we can't do it. The land eats its own people. And there's every big giants there so big you can't even see the top of their head. And there's a terrible, terrible place. And they're arguing and complaining. You only brought us here to kill us. As they're arguing, <laughs> there's two guys with a, a bunch of grapes. Now, you buy grapes, it is big at the store. The grapes came out of the promised land, were so big they put a pole between two men's shoulders put a bunch of grapes on so they could carry them. That's a big bunch of grapes. I never saw them like that. They said they carried them out on a pole. One each and then in between the two guys there's a bunch of grapes. Who knows? 100 pounds 150 pounds of grapes they're carrying out. And they're saying this is an awful land. You're going to hate it. <laughs> so God says okay. All you guys you're going to die. And they all die. Entire nation except people. Joshua and Caleb. Entire nation die. So uh, he says they came out of Egypt and they said we're all part. And God's not going to have it if you're not really a part. Let's go on to verse 6 in Jude. The angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation, he has reserved an everlasting change under darkness into the judgment of the great. 
He says, so if we're going to talk about what's wrong, we're going to go under the general title, rebellion. We have rebellion. All right, these people rebel against Moses and Aaron. They rebelled against the leadership. What was it that John said in John 3? Diotrephes loves to have preeminence. Oh, <laughs> like they did. All right. So he said there's somebody else who liked preeminence. He said angels. Angels were created by God to do certain things. Some of them were messengers. Some of them uh, were watchers over humans. Uh, some of them were made to worship from the day that they were created, and they're still up there, some of them to this day, who knows how many thousands of years have been worshiping God, worshiping God. And they were created to do that, but he said, some of them said, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. There was one guy in particular who was called the son of the morning. His name was Lucifer. And Lucifer said, I am going to make my throne higher than God's. He was an anointed cherub. That is, he was created to, to fly over the throne of God and worship God forever and ever. And he one day said, I'm going to take over. I'm going to take over. And what happened when they tried? The angels were kept not their first estate or they were created for a purpose they left their own habitation. They decided we're not going to do what we're created to do. He reserved an everlasting change in darkness into judgment. And so some of those angels were put in places where they are sort of in all uh, in the Bible, the bottomless pit. They're in a place and they're they're nowhere. It's dark and they're suspended. Somehow in that place, and they're waiting until the judgment day when God calls them out and says, I got another place for you, the lake of fire. So we're going to go from this place where you're in suspended animation into the lake of fire. Why? Because of rebellion. Angels rebelled against God. All right? He says, We're not going to have that. Now let's go on to verse 7. Even Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication, going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And so here's another group. All right, we had number one, we talked about these uh, Israelites. Number two, we talked about angels who were cast down. Number three, he takes us to Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's two cities up on the lake there, and uh, they were um, known for homosexual violence. And we have the story of Lot, who goes Two angels come in to talk to Lot, and the people of the city run up to Lot's door, throw them men out, and we want to have sex with them. All right, and the angels turn them all 
all blind, said the lot, you better get out of town. It's not going to last till tomorrow. And so lot leaves, and uh, God calls down fire and brimstone from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah. And it burned it so thoroughly and so completely was it burned that there never was any sign of it anywhere ever. The only sign anybody's found of Sodom and Gomorrah are sulfur pits along the lake. It's all that's left. They burned it, no ash, no nothing, just sulfur. It's all that's left where those cities were. And so he said, what's that? He said, that's uh, an example of what happens when you rebel against God. So he's building a pretty good case, right? <laughs> he's got a pretty good case. He's showing us the angels rebelled. Sodom and Gomorrah did their thing and rebelled. And he's warning us against these men who come into the church and they're like people of Sodom and Gomorrah. They're changing love that we have in the church is within their power to make it lust. And you say, well, that doesn't happen. And, well, really. Huh? I remember once we had a guy came up to me that lady is sitting back there. And I said, why do you want to know that? He says, I'm going after her. I said, no, you're not, buddy. You ain't touching her. She's a married woman. Well, what's that? I said, don't even say it. Don't even say that to me. This is just what a Jew described. Come into the church, he's going to choose whatever he wants and uh, turn a loving congregation into a place of lust. Well, he didn't last too long. And I... What happened to him? Uh, he hit his head uh, in, a, in a, just his own little accident so violently that he kind of lost his mind. No, no, no. Don't think that people are going to get away with it. They are not going to get away with it. And that's what he's telling us. He's saying, you've got to be careful. It's a serious business. God decided a long time ago that people who rebel are going to be cast out. And he said they look like they're part of the group, but they're not because they don't believe. All right. Verse 8. Likewise, also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignitary. All right. And so... Uh, they're dreaming about what they can do wrong, is what they do, all right? And they also defy any kind of authority. Any kind of authority they defy. They're against all kinds of authority. And uh, uh, they despise dominion, speak evil of dignities, or that is authority and people in charge are going to be under their attack. Verse 9, yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuked thee. No. The Bible tells us that Moses walked away from the camp. He's 120 years old in perfect health. He's in perfect health at 120 years old. 
pretty good, huh? <laughs> and God says, his time's up, Moses, you're coming home. And so go up on Mount Pisgah and look over at the promised land one last time. And from, we sing this song, right? And from Mount Pisgah's lofty height, I view my home, and then I take my flight. And so it says that he saw the promised land, and God took him somewhere, and he died, and he was buried. And the Bible says nobody knows ever where it was. Now there's a reason why God did that. Because Moses was such a wonderful, powerful, amazing man. He talked to God face to face for 40 days until his own skin was shining. Alright? Anybody done that yet? <laughs> My skin don't shine. Believe me. Uh, what he did. And if, they'd have, if they would have seen him die, they knew how to embalm people. They learned that in Egypt. And so they'd have kept him and worshipped that body forever and ever and ever. And God said, I'm going to take that away from you because I know how you are. You worshipped a golden calf a few weeks out of Egypt. And I didn't put up with it then and I'm not going to let you so uh, Michael apparently is sent down to bury Moses and uh, Satan's there I want that body Moses as Michael knew that Satan was the prince and power of the air and said, God rebuke you. He doesn't say, get away from me, you filthy slime. You think, well, I'd like to say that to Satan. Well, you better be careful. He's not to be trifled with either. And Michael the Archangel, who as far as we know, one of the most powerful angels there was, uh, he didn't say wild things again. Because he doesn't defy things. He says... God rebuke you, I'm taking this body, and he took it. All right. But verse 10, these speak evil of those things which they know not. But what they know naturally as brute beasts, in those they corrupt themselves. Right. So he says they don't really understand what's going on, what the work of God is, he says, but they act like animals. They kind of got uh, an animal nature, and he says, and they'll do anything to defy, anything to ignore, anything to deny, and anything to change the love and grace of God into something dirty. And so, verse 11, woe unto them, they have gone in the way of Cain, ran greedily after the arrow of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Right, and so he says there's three of these people who are representatives in the Old Testament of these people who come in to the church. Right? He said one of them is Cain. Now what did Cain do? Well, we know what Cain did. Him and his brother Abel, Adam's first two sons, and they are uh, told by Adam, it's time to make your sacrifice. So Abel gets a lamb, takes a lamb from his flock, kills it, makes a sacrifice. 
Kane brings a bunch of carrots and squash and whatever he's got. So there's my sacrifice. And God says, I don't want that. You missed the whole point. I'm not going to accept that sacrifice. You've got to do like your brother. Now, I'm not doing that. He said, I'm not going to do that. He said, well, your brother's accepted and you're not. And God said to me, if you do right, I'll accept you. Just do it right. That's all. Okay. And the next thing he does is kills his brother. Because the next thing, two verses later, he's out in the field talking to his brother and murders his brother. So the first sin was eating a piece of fruit. Second sin was murder your own brother. He murders his own brother. Why? Because he wants what I want, and I want to do it my way. And Cain is represented with people who want everything to focus on them. Cain is an inward focus. I focus on myself. And God says, I'm going to make you a vagabond in the earth. You're going to wander. And what does he say? Remember? My punishment is more than I can bear. You killed your brother. He's lying dead in the ground. But you, you don't these people that come in. It's all about what you do to me. Everything's about me. Nothing's about you. Nothing's about Abel. It's about Cain. All right, so he says they're like that. They ran greedily after the heir of Balaam. Balaam was a prophet. And Balaam. They came to Balaam because they wanted to curse the Israelites. So they came to Balaam. We want you to curse these Israelites. They're coming up through our property, and I want you to curse them. He said, I can't do that. We'll be back. And they come back with pockets full of money. Say, look, how about it? Well, (laughs) and Balaam, it says here, the heir of Balaam for reward. So if he could get something out of it, he will accept it, all right? And so he wants something out of his servant. Balaam serves God, and that's what those men are like that are creeping into the church. And you got one more, the gainsaying of Corey. Gainsaying is an old word we long stopped using. It means to contradict. And, and he came in to contradict Moses, right? Corey came and said, Moses shouldn't be in charge. He's led us out here just to make himself a king. He brought us from the land of nothing, honey, slavery. Out in the wilderness, where we're eating manna and drinking water from a rock. But anyway, uh, he contradicts Moses' leadership, wants to say, I'm in charge. All right? And so he says, there's three natures. Cain, I'm all for myself. I don't care what my brother does. Am I my brother's keeper? That's what he said to God. Am I supposed to help my brother? I'm here for myself. All right, and the second one, Balaam, I'm in it for what I can get out of it. Whenever I can get something for me, that's what I'm in it for. And the third one is Corey, I am in it to contradict leadership. 
I'm going to contradict them and move against them. So this is what he's warning us. He said, you have a gospel to present, and it's your responsibility to take care of it. These are the kind of people that are kind of coming and join themselves to the church. Now, God is not going to accept them. I'm going to allow them to continue. They're going to pay a price. They're going to be judged by God. Angels were judged. Sodom and Gomorrah was judged. People of Israel were judged, buried alive in the sand, burned along the seashore into a crisp, in front of the door, burned up, and the plague killed them. God said, I'm not going to take it. You're not going to join God's people with the idea of your own gain and your own desires coming your own way. I won't allow it. All right. So <clears throat> we're kind of running out of time. And I thought it would take a good two weeks anyway. So we're going to continue now uh, next week with the idea of what they are. They are spots in your feast of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. He said, they're in your church. And they're eating like they own the place. And he says, you got to guard against them and God is going to judge them. So it's a pretty powerful book based on lots of history as he clearly lays down the way God behaves with people who say I'm a part, but they're really not. Okay? We'll go on next week as he goes into the future, our future, and talks about what's coming. Thank you.